Minus 15. Respect all, fear none. Into the upper deck. Intensity is not a curfew. Oh, mercy! Five, four, three, two, one. From inside the Masson Newsroom, it is the Masson All Access Podcast brought to you by Marymount University. Visit MarymountSaints.com to learn more about our student athletes and programs today. Baseball is back. You heard right. It's coming back in a 60-game format. We're going to talk about what it means for the Orioles and what it'll look like. The strangest season, to be sure, of our lifetimes is just around the corner. Paul Mancano and Brendan Mortensen here with you. We're going to have Jim Palmer on, Mass and Broadcaster, and Orioles great. But first, definitely our premier guest is is Brendan Mortensen, who joins us now via Zoom. Brendan, uh, we had to get you out of the way before we get you know, to the lesser guest, which is Hall of Famer Jim Palmer. Right. You have the Orioles legend and then you have Jim Palmer on later. I mean, it it just makes sense. It just makes sense. Yeah, exactly. Well, Brendan, uh, we are going to have a strange season. This is this is undoubtedly going to be the weirdest season of our lifetimes. I think a 60 game season. It's assumed no fans in the stands. Uh, The agreements were were reached uh, in terms of health and safety protocols yesterday between MLB and MLBPA. We're still waiting to see exactly what the schedule will look like in terms of what games will be played on what days. But we do know some things right off the bat. 40 games are going to be played against division opponents for the Orioles, so against the AL East teams, and then 20 games within their region in the NL. So that's that's NL East teams. Uh, six of those 20 games will be played against the rivals, which would be the world champion Washington Nationals. And then the other 14 games will be split up amongst the other four NL East teams this is going to be so so bizarre in so many ways and I think that the reaction last night of finally getting baseball back after the long awaited return was a little bit tepid only because one I think it took so long and two we still got to see if this is going to go through you know we still don't have all the information teams have not reported they're going to report in a week we're still getting cases added to the list every day in terms of positive tests. I think it was a little bit tepid, but that being said, this is the most positive and and forward step that we have seen to baseball coming back in 2020. Well, quite frankly, it was three months of just really ugly negotiations. I mean, the Major League Baseball as a whole just really did not look very good in all of this. And I think people are just really excited to have baseball back in any form. And like you were saying, it's really interesting. There's just so much up in the air that we still really don't know. I mean, we were talking before the podcast, just like, Oh, do you know what is happening with this? Do you know what was happening with this? Because there's so many question marks still, but, but what we do know is that it's going to be a very, very interesting season. Like you said, I mean, it's only 60 games, 60 games. And that's going to lead to, you know, a lot of discrepancies in what you might normally see out of a much longer season, like the Nationals last year. We all know started 19 and 31. That team's not making the playoffs in a 60 game season. They go on yeah. to win the World Series last year. So you can see a lot of differences in this season, and, and we could see some really crazy stuff. Well, and speaking of the crazy stuff, I think it's fair to start asking some questions when it comes to the Orioles. I, 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 I'm just going to be the guy that asks the questions today because. I think that's it's kind of 
it, this is all uh, new territory, and I think it's fair to ask these questions about one. Let's start off with this, Brendan. 60-game season, could the Baltimore Orioles make the playoffs? It's it's not an expanded playoff field. We're going to still have 10 playoff teams. But could they do it? I mean, 60 games, I was looking through their schedule last year. I, I could not find a 60 games. There was no 60-game no stretch in which they were over 500. There was no 60-game stretch I could find that even did not include at least a six- or seven-game losing streak. But that being said, this is going to be a new team from last year. Could could they do it? Could we get a 60-game Orioles playoff team, Brendan? Listen, <laughs> I want to be the optimist here. You're going to rain on but everybody's The Orioles, brain. I am. I'm going to rain a little bit. The Orioles just got about the toughest draw that you could get. First off, you're in the AL East in which the Orioles were 24 and 52 last season. They go 2 and 17 against the Yankees, 22 and 35 against everyone else. I think the Red Sox are probably the only team in the AL East that's going to be a little bit worse. The Yankees got better, the Rays got better, and the Blue Jays got better. So that's a really tough division that you're playing 40 of your 60 games in. And then you've got the other 20 against the regional teams from the National League. And that's probably the toughest division you could get, too. You've got the NL East, which has the defending World Series champions that came in second in the, in the division last season. You've got the Braves, who were 97-65 and 65 last year, the Nationals, the Mets, who were still 10 games above 500, and the Phillies, who were the second worst team in the division at 81-81. and 81. And then, of course, you've got the Marlins, who are at the bottom of the division, and that could be some wins, but... I don't know. I'm not seeing a ton of wins on the schedule for the Orioles. Yeah, the path to a playoff team, um, because people were asking, you know, how many wins would a team have to have to make the playoffs in a 60-game season? In terms of win percentage, if you prorate that to 60 games, the worst team typically in in baseball that makes the playoffs every year still has an over 500 winning percentage, and you prorate that to 60 games, and you got to win about... 33 games um ESPN's Dave Schoenfield did the math and it's you have to have at least 33 wins and the other thing is I think when you have a team surprise team make the playoffs every year they they still have to buy at the deadline so they still you know it's it's a surprise team because who they have out of the gate and then oftentimes by the end of the season they look pretty different because they said all right we're good enough to get in the race Let's buy at the deadline we weren't expecting to. The MLB is going to have a trade deadline this year. It's going to be August 31st. So they're going to have played a little bit over halfway through the season, considering opening day is going to be July 23rd or 24th. So my question, my next question, Brendan, is what you would have to see in the first 30-some games from the Orioles to convince you to buy it. Is there literally anything that the Orioles could do in those first 30-some games by August 31st to buy at the deadline? Well, if, if you're a few games above 500 and think that you have a chance in the playoffs, sure, why not buy at the deadline? But like I was saying, I think it's a really tough schedule for Baltimore, and I'm not so confident that they're going to be in that position by the deadline. But if you are in the midst of a playoff push, there's no reason why you wouldn't buy at the deadline. But also, I think the trade deadline is going to be pretty interesting as well. Because are you really going to trade guys in a pandemic? 
that that's my question with the trade deadline is relocating somebody and and all that just seems very very complicated so i think teams might be a little more hesitant to buy at the deadline but i think another scenario too is maybe if you're looking at a guy who is going to be a free agent after the 2020 season and maybe if you're baltimore and you find a guy who you might want to sign and think if you trade for him you can re-sign him then maybe you go after somebody but i don't know i don't i don't see a lot of scenarios where the orioles are buyers at the deadline rather than sellers i can't imagine mike elias trading anybody he considers to be part of the future at all at the deadline nor should he um, just because it's not worth it for 30-some games and a chance to make the playoffs. To right. me, the, the only kind of moves you would make at the deadline are either one, you sell, and then, to be honest, I don't know how what you could sell. Maybe maybe you could sell a Michael Givens, but you know, you're selling him to a team when saying, all right, here you go, you're going to get at most about, what, 15 games of Michael Givens at most? Um, so it, it, to me, it doesn't make a whole lot of sense to make many trades, period, but... I, I can't see Michael Elias buying it all. But the other thing is, like, if, if you do have a legitimate chance of making the playoffs, is it worth it? You know, like, is it worth what, – what kind of – what would that mean for the Orioles to make the playoffs for the first time since 2016? Would it count the same as it would in any other year? You know, because you have fewer games and you also have no fans in the stands. You know, I would say almost – if you did have fans in the stands, just to be able to see a playoff game again at Camden Yards, I think would be would almost be worth it, just because of how much life that would inject into the fan base. But considering you, you're not going to have fans in the stands, and also people will throw it out because of the small sample size, I think that the playoffs might mean slightly less than they would in other years. That being said, I think it would be incredibly fun I think it would be a, a raucous time and it would be so much fun because it, it would be a team that was not supposed to be there in a year that was not supposed to be their year and they somehow make the playoffs just because of these crazy circumstances. And I don't know how much a playoff game per se would matter to the Orioles, but I think it's a very good opportunity for you to look at some of the guys that you have on the current roster. We know about the farm system. We know there's a lot of top prospects that are going to be coming up within the next few years. But it, this gives you a chance to look at some of the guys you have right now and see if any of them are going to be cornerstones moving forward. I mean, you've got guys up already like Austin Hayes that have already proven themselves to, to be a piece moving forward. But are there any other guys that are going to stick around for the long term? You look at guys like Hans Alberto, Anthony Santander, Rio Ruiz, Dwight Smith. I mean, are these guys that are going to have they have a real opportunity here, just like they did last year to have good seasons, to keep proving themselves and, and try to stay a part of this Orioles rebuild moving forward. And I think if you're looking at kind of the goals of the season, if you're Baltimore, I think that's a big one. And, you know, any, any kind of, for them to even be in the race, um, you mentioned the uphill battle that they would face. And I still don't think, I still think there's, it's a non-zero chance, but there's a very, very, very slim chance that they make the playoffs or even finish above 500. It would, if they were to be in the race, it would have to be on the backs. It would have to be, you would have to get like a, a magical return to form season from Chris Davis. You'd have to get probably like a Cy Young type season from John Means. Um, you'd have to maybe see a guy like an Austin Hayes, a Ryan Mountcastle come up and light the world on fire. You would have to have so many things go right um, for for them to even be above 500. 
not impossible, but again, very slim. But that brings me to the next point, which is do the Orioles have any legitimate chance to win any of the individual awards? Because it's going to take all of those things going right for them to make the playoffs, but it would only take one of those things going right for them to be in the conversation to win an individual award. Um, I did a little bit of research into the best 60-game stretch last year from some guys. Saw 2.38 ERA from Michael Givens. Uh, John Means had a 2.80 ERA in the first 60 or so games when he was a little bit out of the bullpen, a little bit uh, mostly starting. Um, And Hanser Alberto had a 341 average in his best uh, 60-game stretch. And then Renato Nunez had 19 homers in his best uh, 60-game stretch. Would any performance from one of those guys or somebody that we're not mentioning, could any of those guys be in the conversation for a Cy Young for an MVP by season's end? Well, I, I think in 60 games, anything can happen. I mean, you talk about some of those stretches, and those are Cy Young MVP-like numbers. And so I think there could be a handful of guys on this roster that could all of a sudden have a great stretch and and get themselves in that conversation. I think John Means, I don't know if he's a Cy Young caliber pitcher right now. It'll just be his second year in the league. But certainly a stretch where he's in the, you know, even mid-twos to upper-twos if he's getting high strikeout numbers. And the tough thing going against John Means as well is that I don't know if he's going to pick up a ton of wins. I mean, even last year he was fantastic, but still only had, I think, 10 wins on the season. So that's certainly going to be something working against him. But I think somebody like Hanser Alberto, like Rio Ruiz, if they had a good 60-game stretch, they could do something. I mean, Austin Hayes, when he came up last year, had a really good stretch. I think he could also be in a conversation for maybe a gold glove in center field. But I know Byron Buxton in Minnesota would have something to say about that. But I I think there's a chance, and I think there's more of a chance than in years past just because it's a shortened season and you're not going to have kind of those regression to averages that you might have. A hot streak could be almost a quarter of the season. So, you know, any of those numbers that – kind of seem like they're too good to be true are going to take up a much longer chunk of the season than they normally would. The the only thing to that is if you do get a, a great 60-game stretch out of one of your guys, that means obviously somebody else in the league is also going to have some amazing 60-game right. stretch. You know, So like uh, uh, numbers that, in theory, numbers that might win the MVP or the Cy Young this year might not be good enough, as crazy as that is. You you might get, because you might get these crazy skewed statistics. I don't think you're going to see anybody hit 400, but like you, you know, if Hanser Alberto hits 341, yeah, in 162 games, absolutely, that's crazy and amazing. But odds are, if Hanser Alberto's hitting 341, that means in 60 games, Mike Trapp's hitting 390. You know, like it, you're right. going to, you could get another. Um, crazy 60-game stretch from somebody else. The other thing is, I think the... Typically, you know, Cy Young does not have to do with team overall performance. So I think that would be your best chance of of winning an individual award or a rookie of the right. year. Um, if Ryan... You know, the other one that we haven't discussed is, is, you know, what if Ryan Mountcastle comes up and demolishes, you know, in 60 games, he plays... He, he makes the team out of spring training 2.0 and he crushes, and he plays a solid outfield wherever he's thrown. So I think that's a legitimate chance. MVP, I don't think really anybody can win it 
one because Trey Mancini would probably be their best hope, and you know right. we're not going to see him in 2020. And the other thing is you're gonna you would have to at least be a 500 team, I think, to have an MVP candidate um, on your right. team, and he would have to outslug everybody else in the league, including a Mike Trout and, and all the the games. You would still have to outperform all the game's best hitters plus some fluky performance that you might get from somebody else. Right, and Trout is kind of the anomaly there because he's been a consistent MVP candidate on a team that has not had a lot of success. Yeah, And I think if you're somebody on the Orioles that's going for that MVP race, you have to have an unbelievable season if the Orioles aren't picking up a lot of wins. And, and Trout kind of has that category covered at the moment in terms of yeah. you know being great on a not great team. So you've got to just have an unbelievable year in Baltimore. So the that kind of brings us to the next point about Rookie of the Year and how the Orioles might handle their prospects because we don't have answers yet to a lot of questions, one of them being how much service time would guys get if they play 20 games, if they play 30 games, if they play the full season. You know, uh, Typically, if you're going to play the full season, you're going to get a full year's worth of service time, but if you play less than that, are you going to get a full year's worth of service time? Um, and the Orioles have some guys right on the brim that they might not want to give a full year's service time to, uh, Ryan Mountcastle probably being the most important name. So we still we can't like answer those questions yet. I think we're going to have to discuss that down the road. But it's an interesting thing to to wonder is, you know, how will the new service change service term service time excuse me rules affect somebody like a Ryan Mountcastle. Uh, a Keegan Aiken, um, you know, a Dean Kramer, somebody like that, that they might want to hold off for a year um, because we would still love to see a full season from these guys. And, um, you know, if they're not getting a full season, if they're, if they're not with the big league team, are they in the taxi squad? Are they with those, you know, the 30 or so guys that are off campus, off site, um, in Norfolk or wherever it's going to be um, working out. And is that enough development that Mike Elias and, you know, the front office think, all right, he's got enough work in, he's had enough development to the point where we feel comfortable just p- keeping him there the entire season. And it'll be interesting to see, too, what those minor league guys are going to do. If there's no minor league season I know there's been talks about possibly having a league in Arizona. We don't know. A a lot of things are still up in the air for those prospects. But depending on what Major League Baseball decides to do with the service time, if you can be if you can play 40 games and not have it count as a year of service time. I mean, why not call up guys like, you know, your Mount Castles, even maybe you're using Diaz, you know, Dean Kramer, Keegan Aiken some guys who could get some quality time in the majors because all of a sudden, you know, 20 games at the beginning of the season didn't matter last year. It wasn't a very good indicator of how your team was going to do going forward, but now 20 seasons, 20 games, excuse me, is a large chunk of the season. So your first 20 games might indicate just where your team is going to go. And if you can get 40 games, however many games it is out of some guys and not have it count against their service time, then it might be worth it. Yeah. But you could also see something like an Arizona league where you can send out a bunch of your top prospects and they can get playing time there because you've got to get your top prospects run somewhere. Yeah. Just somewhere, whether it's at the major league level, whether it's at the minor league level. And these guys that are close, I I think it would definitely be worth calling them up to the big leagues just to get a little bit of run 
because they need to be doing something. You can't just waste a year of these minor league prospects. And down the line, you know, in the future, we will have spring training 2.0 to kind of discuss all this stuff, and we'll we'll see how rosters are going to shake out because. Um, you know, Trey Mancini not playing this year means that there's potentially an open spot in the outfield. We're assuming Chris Davis is still going to be manning first base. Renato Nunez could still be your DH, but you know, the the door is suddenly wide open for potentially Ryan Mountcastle to start every day in a position, um, which is what right. the Orioles would prefer as opposed to sticking him at DH. So these are all going to be at least we have some exciting stuff, baseball type stuff to discuss, and we will discuss that. Um, over the next few weeks, as we as we these team these players are going to uh, report to camp, hopefully healthy, hopefully in shape, and we're just going to kind of see where we go from here. Uh, but Brendan, before we get out, get you out of here, uh, we did promise to the good fans of the Mass and All Access podcast that we were going to go through our 2023 uh, pitching staffs, including our rotation and our bullpen. Uh, let's start with you again. Last week we did our lineups. Let's go to your five-man rotation for the 2023 Orioles opening day uh, roster. All right. So my top three, I think you could really put any of them in the top three, and I wouldn't argue with you. Uh, my top three right now is John Means, D.L. Hall, and Grayson Rodriguez. Yep. Uh, I put Rodriguez at number three, Hall at two, and Means at one, because Means will be, I think, 30 years old at the start of the 2023 season if he continues to have success, there's no reason that he wouldn't be the opening day starter. And then I've got Hall and Rodriguez at two and three because those guys are probably going to be up around the 2021-2022 seasons. So, you know, maybe they won't have enough time under their belt to cement themselves as the top guy. But I think they could certainly be, you know, the number two and number three guys. And then a number four, number five, I think there's honestly about four or five guys that you could throw in yeah. as the last two starters in the rotation. Uh, for right now, I've got Michael Bauman and Keegan Aiken. Uh, I have Aiken in there because I think he will probably be called up the earliest out of the guys that you could probably throw in there. And then Bauman, I think, might have the best stuff behind Hall and Rodriguez. So I have him at four and five. But I think you could also make a good argument for uh, Dean Kramer, Alex Wells, Zach Lowther, any of those guys could really be the number four or number five starters. This is this is my favorite part of this discussion because we could be sitting here talking about the 2020 opening day starter, but I think we'd, we're more likely now to have a debate about the 2023 Orioles opening day starter because I have Grayson Rodriguez starting uh, right off the bat as, as the opening day starter, but those top three, I totally agree with you. Um, in some order, I think the most likely at this point will be John Means, Grayson Rodriguez, D.L. Hall. I mean, hopefully John Means was not a one-year wonder. It's still a, a, a chance. We still do not have a proven track record beyond this one year um, to show that he can be a starter long-term, but that's the hope. We did say we could add one free agent, so I have added my one free agent in the rotation, and that would be right-handed pitcher Lance McCullers Jr. coming from the mm. Houston Astros. Little ties to Mike Elias going back to the to their Astros days. Still really young, um, I think he's going to be a free agent before the 2023 season or 2022 season. You sign him, you add him as a veteran presence to your uh, rotation. And then my last guy went with a different guy. You mentioned Keegan Aiken and Michael Bauman. I have Bauman in the bullpen, um, and I have Zach Lowther 
in your starting uh, rotation. I just believe in this guy. I think he's going to be really good. He's a lefty. He just continues to put, like put up numbers everywhere he goes. He's, uh, I think he's a uh, you know a, a stat cast darling. He's got um, crazy spin rate, even though he doesn't have you know amazing stuff. So I'm I'm putting uh, McCullers and Lowther to round out my rotation. Brendan, your bullpen. The bullpen is tough. I think the bullpen is really hard to predict. Um, but I, I have a few guys in here, like I said, that I think could either be swing men, they could be long relievers, and they have a chance to be in that starting rotation. Uh, for my long relief pitchers, I have Dean Kramer and Alex Wells. Uh, for middle relief, I have yeah. Cody Sedlock, Zach Lowther, Blaine Knight, and Dylan Tate. <laughs> okay. Uh, for my setup man, I have Hunter Harvey. And then uh, my closing pitcher is my free agent signing, who is going to be a free agent after the 2020 season. And that's Liam Hendricks, who is the current closer for the Oakland A's. And I think if you're going to spend money somewhere, I think the Orioles have a lot of depth at the starting rotation spot. I think if you're going to spend money, spend it on a closing pitcher. I know Hunter Harvey has a chance to prove himself this season and maybe it'll eliminate the need to sign a closing pitcher. But I think Liam Hendricks had a fantastic season last year, and I think he would be a really good addition to the bullpen. Uh, I, I'm not big on spending money in free agency on relievers just because I think they're too year-to-year there. Um, also, isn't Liam Hendricks Australian? Am I thinking of the right guy? Maybe. I'm not sure. <laughs> I think he That's is. possible. In, yeah. in that case, you also had Alexander Wells, right, in your bullpen? Yes. In that yeah. case, you would have two of the – I think there were either three – Three or four. I think it would. I think there are currently two. I think Australian-born players in Major League Baseball. This is bad podcasting, but I think you two currently <laughs> have two. And Alex Alexander Wells, if he gets called up, could be the third. Well, so listen. He, I'm just trying to build the team chemistry. I mean, the locker room awesome. camaraderie is going to be fantastic. You have two. What can you I have say? two Aussies in the bullpen. Um, yeah. No, that that would be pretty cool. Um, I like Hunter Harvey being your setup, man. Um, I mean, that that one-two punch, eight-nine punch, if you will, in the back of the bullpen would be awesome. In terms of my yeah. bullpen, I have a lot of the same names. So I have Michael Bauman in the bullpen as opposed to starting rotation like you did. Uh, Dean Kramer's in my bullpen. Cody Sedlock, I got him there too, former first-round pick. He's a little bit older, had injury issues, but he's still got, like, great stuff. Yep. Alexander Wells uh, is in my bullpen Hunter Harvey is my closer. And then I'm throwing in Bruce Zimmerman, who was at Norfolk last year. He's a lefty. I got Paul Fry making it all the way to the 2023 roster. Still believe in Paul Fry. I think he's got, I think he still has it. Obviously, uh, round a five ERA last year, but another lefty. And then long term, I got Drew Rahm, who was with the Delmarva Shorebirds last year. Uh, I, another guy, I think he was a fourth round pick, uh, crushed it in the rotation. I think he could be a, a great bullpen piece down the line. So that's that's roughly the eight or however, however many guys, eight guys that I have in my bullpen. Yeah, the bullpen is just so hard I don't to know, predict. You can't predict even one year out for the bullpen. No, I, not at all. You you had Dylan Tate in there. I I like Dylan Tate. I don't know if he's going to make it that far. I mean, he he really struggled. At a time when they needed anybody in the bullpen last year, that's why like we don't have too many guys, I think, making it all the way you know, between right. 2020 and 2023, just because that was it, on a a roster that really had a few bright spots. The bullpen was had just about none. I mean, Hunter Harvey might have been the only bright spot 
uh, in that bullpen all of last year. So I think it's I think it's a totally remade bullpen, um, and you're just gonna have to see. It's pretty much gonna be based on like the guys we listed. These are all like starters that couldn't quite make it that we don't think are, are gonna make it basically. Right, and, and I think a big reason for me kind of reconstructing the bullpen completely too is when you look at trade deadlines and teams who are making playoff pushes teams need bullpen arms. And I think if the Orioles have good seasons out of their bullpen guys, I think realistically Baltimore is probably going to be sellers at the deadline for the next few years. And if you get good seasons out of, you know, a guy like Michael Givens, there's a pretty good chance that he might be a deadline deal. And I think if you have good seasons out of any of your bullpen arms going forward over the next few years, they might be deadline deals. So I think if you're looking at the 2023 season down the line, and hoping for those good bullpen years out of guys, they might be trade pieces and you might be getting some good prospects and returns. So, you know, the bullpen is going to vary a lot. And I think a lot of those guys could get dealt with in the next few years. Yeah. Well, we got the 2020 season to focus on. We'll actually will have a 2020 season, even though it will be very strange and very abbreviated. But Brendan, what's your Twitter handle? Where can people find you? It is at Brendan Morty because Twitter does not like my full name. It thinks it is way too long. So I have shortened it for the people. Couldn't agree more. Of course, uh, give him a follow. We're going to have Jim Palmer coming up around the corner. Brandon, thanks. Thanks so much for having me. Now we're joined by Hall of Famer and, of course, Mass and Broadcaster Jim Palmer, who joins us via Zoom. Jim, thanks so much for hopping on. Oh, well, it's uh, my pleasure. I'm out here in California. We have June gloom. You know, it doesn't clear off. If it does, so about one o'clock. But the gloom seemed, if you're a baseball fan, to uh, fade away yesterday when finally the owners and the players came up with an agreement. Yeah, it's a perfect transition. What was your reaction to the news yesterday that the agreement was made on a 60-game season? Well, let's see. Uh, (laughs) I work for Masson. Well, about time. I think, uh, you know, there's... I, you know, I was a member of the union for years and, you know, the union has done great things for the players, but, you know, I'm sitting here and I'm thinking, okay, you know, you're going to plead, you know, the fact that you're not happy with the agreement you negotiated and you signed back in the winter of 2016 and 2017, if you're a player or you're Tony Clark and you're the union leader and I'm going, well, you signed it, you agreed to it. Things change. The base, you know, baseball's evolved. We know analytics play a big part. Um, you know, I think, I don't think they're unhappy with the fact that Mike Trout, every time he plays a game, gets $222,000. Or uh, Garrett Cole is going to get over a million dollars per start. Now, that'll change because of the pandemic and the fact they're only going to play 60 games. But there's plenty of revenue. And I always thought that, you know, that the most important thing, if you're a player, is what percentage of the revenue you're getting. I think it's dropped a little bit, but it's still about 47% in a normal year of about $10.7 billion. So, it just seemed to me that they were trying to renegotiate the agreement they signed back in 2017. They had some leverage. Um, I'm not sure we would have played that many games anyway because of the pandemic. I'm not sure how many games we're going to play because, as you know, uh, through many states, uh, you know, hopefully Baltimore will not be one of them. Uh, you're seeing a spike in, uh, you know, COVID-19. So we'll see how all this shakes out. But, you know, they, the, the commissioner had to implement um, – you know, what he had the right to do when they made that agreement back in March 26th. And I think the one thing that I look at, Paul, is that uh, I was just kind of surprised that you would have language. If we play without fans, we will discuss the economic feasibility, such a nebulous clause in a contract between the players and the owners. 
And if you follow baseball, I mean, all the way back into the 70s and the 80s, they don't always like each other. And I think that this is one of their moments. So hopefully they'll like each other for the next uh, 60 games and then the playoffs. And, uh, you know, we'll see where this goes. Jim, you were a player during some work stoppages, of course, during your career. Back in 1981, a work stoppage ended up crushing 40% of the season uh, in the middle of the year. But did you get any kind of flashbacks uh, to that 1981 season while all of this talk was going on? Well, of course, I think, uh, you know, you make a good point that when the strike started, I'm not sure it was the end of May or early June, it went for like 52, 53 days. We had already gone to spring training. Spring training back then, you know, you, you, you'd get seven starts. You'd probably pitch 40 innings. You'd be ready to pitch extra innings opening day. Um, not many of the Oriole pitchers got as many innings, I think, as they would have liked uh, this year. I think, you know, I mean, Chris Davis was, you know, the hitters. You know, a lot of times you'd talk to hitters after two weeks of spring training. They say, hey, I'm ready to start the season. Pitchers, a little bit different. And that's why this, you know, uh, whatever it's going to turn out to be, the, the, the 20 or the 21 days of, of summer training. It used to be spring training. Now it's going to be summer training is going to be important. It'll be very interesting. They're going to have expanded rosters. You know, they're talking about for the first two weeks, what, 30 players then drop into 28. And then you go back to what they were going to have for the first time. Well, not the first time, but the first time in recent years where they were actually going to have a 26 man roster. So, you know, how you, you know, how you deploy your, your players, you know, I, you know, well, you know, you read it probably as much as I do, you know, they're saying, well, it, it, you know, usually baseball season's a marathon. Well, this is going to be a sprint. There's going to be 60 games. Um, you know, you're not going to have the 16 teams or whatever they wanted in the postseason because they couldn't come up with that as part of the agreement. But I think what we're going to see is, you know, the team that probably has the best bullpen, you know, maybe maybe some of the intermediate pitchers, because I think a lot of times you're going to be like spring training. I don't know what the pitch count will be. I would imagine they'd be able to throw more than 30, 35 uh, pitches, uh, you know, maybe the first time out. But, you know, they'll be doing simulated games. And um, I think it's, you know, it's interesting. You talked about 81. I never missed a day. And it took me almost another month to get back to where I was able to, you know, I think I'd be Milwaukee and the Yankees uh, the last two games. And I was at least, you know, we had a very, we had a good team. We had one of the better records, but because they split the seasons, we didn't go to the postseason that year, but at least it gave me uh, some kind of impetus that, you know, to get ready for 1982 and had one of my better years that year. Well, it's good that they will have some time, at least for a spring training 2.0, to get themselves back in shape. For some of the non-contending teams, the Orioles, of of course, being one of them, with 60 games, you never know. But assuming that the Orioles are not in the playoff race by the end of the year, how do you see this affecting a team like the Orioles? We still haven't any official word about the minor league season, but potentially being canceled altogether. How do you see all of these changes between the shortened major league season and the potential uh, canceled minor league season affecting the O's? Well, I think, you know, they have so many young players. I mean, they also, you know, if you look at last year's roster, I mean, Hanser, Alberto, you know, he almost hit 400 against lefties. Uh, you know, you wanted to see, I don't know if he, you know, he can do that again. I think he had 398 against left-handed pitching, 230-something against right-handed. So I think you wanted to find out, is he a platoon player? Or can, you know, can he hit close to 300 again? Um, you know, uh, you know, people forget that Renato Nunez hit 31 home runs last year. Now we all know it was, you know, the, the most home runs in the history of baseball. You know, we also know it's a game where, you know, hit more home runs and strikeouts is all right for the second consecutive year. You had what more strikeouts and base hits or something like that. So the game has changed a little bit. I think, you know, uh, Santander, um, you know, I mean, he hit, you know, he hit 20 some home runs or 20 home runs. 
Uh, he looks like he's probably a better corner outfielder. Um, but at the end of the day, you wanted to see a lot of the young players get at bats. Uh, you know, I know as a, you know, John Means, great first half, had some shoulder problems in the second half, didn't pitch quite as well, you know, made the all-star team. Okay, you know, is he the real deal? Can he stay a little bit healthier? You know, I think a lot of it, you know, it falls off a little bit, put some stress on that shoulder. So uh, I think all these things, you know, Alex Cobb, you know, he's got two more years on his deal. You know, I know the Orioles would love to trade him, but the only way you trade is somebody like Alex is if he gets back on the mound, able to get his innings in. You know, so there were a lot of, uh, you, you know, um, you know, Asher, I mean, you know, he had some great games. One of the best games I saw Pitts last year when uh, Wojciechowski, uh, you know, I mean, he just dominated the Red Sox and they had a pretty good offense. I mean, Mookie Best wasn't a Dodger. <laughs> he was playing for the Red Sox. So, you know, a lot of questions. Uh, you know, Michael Gibbons, one of those guys you thought he was going to be traded every Every week towards last year, uh, you know, didn't have a great spring, but, you know, he's one of the mainstays. Tanner Scott pitched a little bit better. Uh, Cody Carroll was, you know, part of the, uh, the, you know, the trades we made back in 2018. Great spring. So there were all these things that I think we were all kind of looking forward to see if, okay, if these guys are for real. You know, I know a lot of managers, a lot of scouts will tell you, well, you don't believe what you see in the spring training. But I'll tell you what, it's better if you're trying to make a ball club to have a good spring to have a bad one. And we had a lot of young players that actually were playing well. And I think collectively, Paul, you make a good point. Cardinals played pretty well this spring. Yeah. And it, of course, we could see some wonky stats come out of a 60 game season, maybe some records broken. Uh, I went back and I looked at one of your Cy Young seasons, 1975, through the first 60 games of that season. You had 11 wins and a 1.64 ERA. That would have won you Cy Young through 60 games, whether it was then or by the end of a 162-game season. Do you think we could see some strange stat lines that resemble that one from 75? Well, I mean, I, you know, I would imagine so. I mean, I, I, again, I think it's, you know, you have – I mean, well, let's let's you know now because we're you know going to play all the teams what ten times in the American League East, so that's forty games, and the other twenty will be um, National League East teams. So we're going to see the Nationals. The Nationals' record after sixty games last year was twenty-seven thirty-three. Yeah. They won the World Series, so uh, you know, <laughs> so things weren't going exactly the way that they wanted them to go. But of course, they turned it around. You know, Dave Martinez, you know, and what is the second or third year of managing, he kind of you know, settle the troops and they have a very good pitching staff and they have some guys that certainly can play Rendon. Of course, now it's an angel. So at the end of the day, I mean, you, you can have a lot of stuff, but like I said, I, I think that, you know, normally we've, I mean, I learned on, on teams that won 109, 108, 101 games, teams that usually were, uh, that when we went to spring training, we thought we could end up in the postseason. Um, we always knew a game in April meant, meant as much as one in September. I think most a lot of times fans say, hey, well, it's all, you know, matters what they do in the stretch. Well, games you win in April. So now it's going to be what kind of games do you win in late July and early August? You know, we used to always say August, uh, the dog days of summer. Well, the season is just going to be revving up. So I just think managers will probably manage a little bit differently. But then, you know, you want to win, but you also want to protect your players because of, as you mentioned a little bit earlier, the fact that. You know, they've had three months off. I mean, probably the last official workout was, what, March 13th, 14th, somewhere in there. So I think Tampa maybe did a little bit of a workout a couple of weeks ago. But a lot of the teams, have, you know, I think all the teams have had to close their uh, either their minor league facilities and so on. So it's going to be very interesting. And, uh, you know, like I said, you know, it's, it's kind of like a sprint. It's a dash. It's not going to be a marathon. Yeah. And you mentioned the world champion Washington Nationals not making the playoffs. 
at the end of this season, we're going to have a World Series champion if the coronavirus allows them to play a full season. How legitimate would a champion out of this 2020 season be considered, all things considered, with the shortened season and whatnot? Would it be a legitimate World Series title? Probably more legitimate than the one the Astros won in 2017. So there you go. (laughs) (laughs) You know, the, the rules are the same for everybody. So the point is everybody's going to play 60 games. You know, some schedule is going to be a little more different depending on what division you play in and, you know, where where your interleague games are going to be played. You know, I mean, if you look, you know, the Mets, you know, of course they lost Syndergaard, but, you know, they, they got Alonso who led the National League in hitting. So we'll, they'll, we'll see him. You're going to – Atlanta's into the division, I understand. So, you know, you know they, they're primed. Uh, you know, the Nationals are defending world champions. You know, the Phillies, you got Bryce Harper, you, you know, you got Ray Muto. I mean, you got, there are a lot of good teams. So I'm not sure that playing against the National League East is the best of of, the, of all worlds, but it's pretty much equal for everybody. So, I mean, I just think, you know, the interesting thing to me is, that, you know, everybody said, well, it's not about the money, it's about the rank. Well, there's, because of the negotiations and because the players would not accept what the owners want, there is not going to be a, uh, it, it, the World Series share for the players is based on attendance. And there's a good chance you may not have anybody watching the game other than on television. So that was, an, I, from far as I can see, part of any negotiation. So you will not be getting a postseason check or a World Series check. And, I um, mean, if you're a young player or you're a coach or, uh, you know, maybe you're a clubhouse guy that, you know, we used to be very generous with our guys because we knew that, you know, it made, made a big difference in their lives – they're not going to be getting that check. So it's maybe a little bit different pot at the end of the, the rainbow, so to speak, but a world championship is the world championship. And, um, you know, uh, I, I think, I, I think it will be legitimate. And like I said, you know, most people thought the commissioner should have taken away the Astros world championship. This one's going to be at least hopefully equal for everybody. Yeah. Well said, Jim, before we get you out of here, I do want to get your thoughts on the draft, which took place a couple weeks ago. The Orioles shocking the world as it seems taking Arkansas outfielder Heston Kerstad with the number two overall pick. What'd you think of Kerstad and what'd you think of the Orioles overall draft class? Well, I think, you know, I mean, anytime you, you know, you, in my era, I was, you know, McNally, uh, Davey Johnson, Andy Etcheverin, uh, myself, we were all like a couple of years before the draft. So, you know, it was okay. We're going to get these guys bonuses which is what's happening now, of course, because the Orioles only won 54 games last year. They got the second pick behind the Tigers. Um, I think most people thought, most scouts thought that they would probably pick Austin Martin out of Vanderbilt. Uh, You know, he goes to Toronto. So now they even have more young, good players. But, uh, I mean, Kerstad, you know, I looked at some – it's funny. I was reading all the stuff when when most people thought they were not going to take Austin Martin, then they were going to go with maybe somebody else because it would allow them maybe to sequence their way because they had almost what $14 million worth of bonuses they could distribute over, over the, what the first really five rounds with six players. Um, so, you know, I'm looking and everybody described him to Todd Helton, but I was looking at some film yesterday and I mean, this kid, you know, now it's a little bit bat. I mean, he, uh, Keith Hernandez ended up having a pretty good career, but he was a first baseman. You know, Heston's a, an outfielder, most likely would play right field. And, you know, I read some things where he improved defensively. And if you're going to take a field at Camden Yards, even though you only play half your games there, right field at Camden Yards is probably the easiest field to play. You know, Chris Sabo was a second baseman. And 
and they, uh, Johnny Oates put him out in right field once. And I said, Hey, have you ever played right field before? He said, no. And I said, how are you going to play? He said, well, I'm going to turn around and play it off the wall. <laughs> so it's maybe a little more complicated than that. But the, you know, I think the thing that we're talking about is that um, they got probably the best left-handed bat in the draft. Now I, you know, I read all the stuff where they thought they might be able to, you know, get a young pitcher. I think Bisco, you know, Pennsylvania high school kid, uh, you know, before they got, you know, to, uh, to the second choice. Um, and, you know, they, he went with the, what Tampa Bay, I think 24th, cause you gotta understand Tampa Bay, yours aren't the only team that has really good analytical, <laughs> you know, Tampa Bay you know, probably exceeds what most people think every year. They won well over 90 games the last two years. So, you know, they took this young kid and, um, but, you know, I think, you know, Kerstad has a good chance to be a great player. And, you know, Camden Yards. So when I'm watching the film yesterday, it's a home run down the left field line on a high breaking ball. He slams a home run. He hits flares. He hits check swings. He hits ground balls. Um, you know, it looks like he runs. It looks like he's a, I don't know how quite how big he is, maybe 6'2", six, 6'3". Six, Probably will get bigger when he gets, you know, even not that college programs don't have good weight rooms and things like that. But he'll probably mature. And then, you know, he has, you know, the Orioles have made a lot of inroads in helping their young hitters with, you know, swing analytics and whatever. I mean, at the end of the day, you still have to figure out how you pitch and hit against Verlander and Cole and, you know, things like that. Um, but at the end of the day, I think they, you know, they probably made a good pick and maybe it allowed them to get five other maybe a little bit better players than they would have been able to afford. Absolutely. Always great to hear your thoughts on the draft, on the season coming back in 2020, and hopefully we get to uh, hear you on some mass and broadcasts at some point soon. Jim Palmer joining us here. Can't thank you enough, Jim. Oh, my pleasure. Take care. Be, be healthy. You too. Stay safe. So we got for the Mass and All Access podcast today, which of course is brought to you by Marymount University. Visit MarymountSaints.com to learn more about our student athletes and programs today. Thanks to Bren Mortensen, Bobby Blanco, Hannah Broder, and the Hall of Famer Jim Palmer for joining us here on the podcast today. I'm Paul Mancano. Baseball is back. Let's celebrate. And of course, be sure to stay locked on to MassInSports.com for all your news as Spring Training 2.0 gets ready to get going. We'll see you later.